Greetings all, welcome back to the Captimizer podcast. I've got another great episode. John Haas from up north, above the northern border in our neighboring state of Canada. Good afternoon, John. It's morning for you, but afternoon for me. How are you today? I'm good. Yeah, good morning. <laughs> nice to be here. <laughs> so where where are you in Canada? We know that you're in the Vancouver area, but maybe um, maybe a little bit of background about who you are and your uh, your policing experience. And, and then I'll touch on how we even got connected in the first place. Sure. Well, I'm up in uh, yeah Vancouver, BC, which I'm sure uh, your listeners know where that is. Um, I live a little bit to the south in Richmond in a suburb, but I did a um, 40-year career with the Vancouver Police Department, uh, starting in uh, 78 through to 18, and uh, policed every part of the city you know, on the front lines as a patrol officer, uh, was a sergeant at one time in the notorious downtown east side which uh, i think most people in north america are aware of and uh, for the last 15 years i was an inspector during that 40 years at one point i was the union president and uh, for eight years and then was on the uh, union board for another four years after that so about 12 years of, of union time uh, which was super interesting um during my tenure as president, there was a thing called um, the Opal Commission of Inquiry into Policing in British Columbia, which was a uh, two-year-long uh, study by Justice Opal on policing and its deficiencies and, and all the problems it was having. Um, and as a product of that, uh, we ended up with a civilian professional conduct review agency which uh, I can get into later, but I was actually supportive of that, uh, probably for different reasons than the public. And later as an inspector, I was <clears throat> selected by the chief um, as a full-time discipline authority. So I had to work with that agency in a sense, in a uh, adjudicative role, and uh, was pretty shocked by um, what I found on how they operated, which wasn't at all what we had envisioned. So there are issues with civilian oversight and um, we kind of connected because um, there was a uh, LinkedIn post by, um, I think it was an ex-chief of NYPD and talking about the retention and recruitment problems they have out there. And, uh, you know, sort of this um, public confidence crisis in of policing across North America. And um, I think it has a very strong connection to some of the oversight models, uh, civilian oversight models that uh, are in place. The interesting thing is um, policing in North America has probably never had uh, as much civilian oversight as it now has. And I would argue, at least based on my experience with policing the last 40, 50 years, uh, the crisis in confidence in police has never been worse. So there's something that doesn't fit there. So I commented um, on that post, and um, that led us to uh, meet each other. Yeah, you know, it's um, 
we're de we're definitely going to dive into this because it's a it's a common theme that keeps recurring. And the interesting thing is, I, I inside of policing, we're a little bit worried about it, maybe a lot worried about it. And outside of policing, I'm not sure that people understand the precipice that we're on. And you know, it's kind of like that old adage, right? It's not a problem till it's a problem, and and then it's a problem. <laughs> and so when you uh, when you stop having police officers show up for for calls for service, that's generally when people notice, um, or if they catch something that's pretty controversial on the evening news. But yeah, the post uh, the post was pretty interesting, and I I was on vacation at the time. I was sitting in a beautiful tropical environment. Um, popped on my on my laptop and was looking on LinkedIn and uh, and I saw that comment, uh, uh, com the comment that you made because really it's about um, you know in U.S. it's in in the U.S. it seems like the large agencies are are really really struggling to recruit. Uh, they're having retirements uh, in massive numbers. People are leaving earlier, um, and it seems to be pretty consistent. And they're doesn't seem to be a lot of slowing down in those trends right now. So for, I guess, for my own edification and maybe for the listeners, Vancouver, Vancouver is a very large police department. So um, what, like four or 5,000 officers, I think, something like that. No, it's about the city of Vancouver. It's about 1,500 officers. Okay. Greater Vancouver with all of its suburbs. Um, yeah, there's a few thousand. Yeah, maybe that's the way it was explained to me. Yeah. So, so I, I guess in terms of policing, though, policing in Canada uh, is very similar to that in the U.S. And we we touched on that a little bit when we were chatting last week. Um, I, I think even from a rank structure, from a paramilitary structure, everything is is pretty similar. So, from the and it sounds right like even the internal processes are very similar when it comes to internal affairs and internal investigations. And, you know, the, the vernacular may change a little bit, but overall, I think the mechanics are still the same. So the, uh, the other interesting point there is, are in Canada, are all the provinces, or is everybody there covered under the same union protections? Is that a federal uh, guideline or is it more... Uh, provincial, like in the states, like not every state is is a union state. Like Indiana, where I live, is a right to work state, so we don't necessarily have the protections that other states do from a union perspective. So Canada is similar to the states in the sense that um, policing is the responsibility of each province. So um, <clears throat> throughout Canada, though, others, uh, you know, the right to unionize in every. Uh, province. Uh, the only um, police agency that, that sort of didn't have that right until recently, and that was given by the courts, was the, the National Police, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. They, uh, their history is uh, more military than police. And um, so their management successfully argued for years that they were different. But anyway, the, the highest court said, no, they have a right to collective bargaining. So a few years ago, they became unionized. But uh, no, it's it's sort of at the state slash province level. So I, I think we've uh, enjoyed the benefits of um, collective bargaining rights. Uh, the separate issue is the right to strike, though. Uh, virtually in every province, um, 
you don't have a right to withdraw service, nor would you want to. You're just there to negotiate um, wages and benefits and shifts and whatever. Uh, and I think uh, for management, it's actually a good thing to um, to have a body to talk to about uh, employment issues. Yeah. So uh, you served as a union, the, is it a union steward position or the head of the union? Um, yeah, no, I was, uh, so um, I, I had, you know, a bit of a military background, which which I know you had too. Um, I found the, the culture in policing kind of um, um, not the same as the military. Uh, the military has, uh, from my experience, um, a really a solid culture of taking care of its people, of uh, being principled and so forth. And when I got into policing, I was a bit shocked that um, it just wasn't there. There wasn't the development, there wasn't the training. And so you get a lot of odd sort of um, aspects to it, personality, uh, careerism, all that kind of stuff. So um, <clears throat> I became interested in, uh, well, actually, I became involved in, in uh, Police Act issues just by my peers. They were getting into uh, discipline issues. At that time, all discipline, whether it was uh, labor or professional conduct, citizens' complaints, was under one uh, legislative uh, process. And uh, I just sort of got dragged into uh, representing members. That got me interested in the union. And when I felt the union wasn't, uh, or well, actually reflected that police culture, I um, got involved in the union. And to my surprise, got elected as president. So uh, yeah, from there, I just uh, got more involved in, in, in the design of things and uh, uh, the need to change them. So we got into a lot of discussions about um, the discipline process and the public complaints process and, and, and how we dealt with um, citizens' complaints. And just to give some context, uh, you know, in those days, um, citizens' complaints were, were dealt with entirely by uh, the police rank structure. So the chief ultimately would be the one who um, would determine whether the uh, behavior relating to a citizen was appropriate or not and what would happen. Um, when I became president, there was, was uh, an issue about uh, an alleged assault in the jail that just um, blew up politically in that there was a perception of this blue wall of silence. And so uh, the facts would never be known and, and this sort of thing. Um, Unfortunately, there was a civil action, some money paid out by the city, and um, it ended up on the front page of the newspapers. And the perception was, is we had a uh, public complaint system relative to policing that was absolutely toothless and um, something had to be done. And so that started this engagement of um, Ought there not to be a role of, of civilian involvement in the oversight? So that was coming from the public, if you will, from the outside, from you know civil liberties and, and who knows what uh, lobby folks who were getting uh, media time. What's the what's the Canadian version of the ACLU? Is it is it is it the ACLU or is it something? 
what is, so what the ACLU is the American Civil Liberties Union, and that's that's yeah. typically the yeah. So we got the BC Civil Liberties. Uh, we've got Canadian Civil Liberties. You know, you've got all of that. Yeah, absolutely okay. the same. Um, it was kind of interesting because I got into talks with them over it, and like we were <laughs> in terms of a, of a solution at that time, we were on the same page. One, you know, I was thinking we got a surely there's a better system than the unfairness I saw within the police department because of the the sort of um, lack of a of a, what I would call a competent and assertive uh, police leadership culture. I saw a lot of unfairness. Um, they were seeing it from this uh, perspective of, well, here you've got this jail incident and, you know, uh, the public just doesn't know what's going on. So when the Opal Commission came in the 1990s, um, there was a consensus about um, creating some sort of independent external oversight body. And uh, it was kind of interesting because I was uh, somehow in my naive mind was thinking that there would be some sort of more ethical, uh, more principled, more objective cadre uh, of folks out there that are going to find the truth and be fair and all this stuff. And, you know, I look back thinking, you know, what was I on? So, but anyway, we bought into it. And uh, I still remember when the, the government announced this uh, agency being uh, set up. And this is only for professional conduct, by the way. This is not not criminal stuff. That that's another discussion. But this is, you know, uh, use of force, uh, arrest, detention, search, seizure, all that stuff. And um, anyway, I was invited to the press conference, and the premier's there, or the solicitor general, and he says, you know, to the media, if you got any questions, you know, Constable Hodges is here, to, you know, from the union. <laughs> anyway, it got set up. And it seemed to be okay for a while. And then there were conflicts within that office. The staff ganged up against the commissioner and this all became public and, and still the lights weren't going on. Um, as it was, the years passed and I, I got away from the union and I just heard stories about, about that the OPCC, this, this office, you know, really didn't understand policing. Um, didn't understand the dynamics of um, what happens when you're dealing with volatile people, when you have to use force, when on and on it went. And um, went through a few commissioners. And then uh, at one point, I heard things were really going downhill. And a lot of we were still doing the investigations in house, but the complaints commissioner had analysts they had hired who would then. Uh, look at what these, they were all surgeons doing the investigations, look at their investigations and kind of direct them, if you will. And so you, they actually hired a bunch of people that had no police background, no investigative background, and it was just starting to get a bit ridiculous. Anyway, as it was, I was promoted, I became an inspector. Um, there was a change in the law that the uh, investigators couldn't sort of uh, make recommendations and sign these things off. It had to be the chief. And of course, the chief was far too busy for that, but he could assign it to uh, an inspector. So I uh, got the phone call. Would I do this? I had a big background in it. Would I be the first full-time uh, called a discipline authority? So I was there for about a year and a half, and I was absolutely stunned by the interference in the process, the 
obvious political agenda. They'd have a, something that would hit the media or they would bring it to the media. And I thought, why do they keep doing that? Well, because they're a funded body. They've got to show validity. They've got to, um, you know, on and on it went. And the interference in, in what I was doing was, um, was, was wrong. It, it finally came to a head in, um, in one case I had, which is really interesting. I'll, I'll try to be really concise on it, but it was um, a police I think department. the cases will be, I think talking about a case in specific would be really helpful. For, because I think most, most of our audience you know, really are law enforcement professionals, but there's others that jump on here that are trying to learn more about policing. And, and okay. uh, sometimes no, so it's, it's better to hear a story yeah. come from someone else other than me. <laughs> Well, this this to me brought home the the, the real problem with the model, okay? Because uh, I'm sure this replicates in different ways everywhere. But what it was 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 a um, there was a sudden death uh, that had happened in a small municipality, and and likely what had happened the, the evidence would show was uh, an alcoholic seizure. Uh, party fell down the stairs, cracked his head, and the next morning in hospital died. At some point, um, a friend who'd had too much to drink tells some police officer uh, in the next province that he thought something else had happened. Um, that information is dutifully reported back to the jurisdiction. And they said, well, you know, we should have another look at it. Not a busy jurisdiction. They start the homicide investigation. During the investigation, they discover that there were different people in the house, but that one of the relatives was a Vancouver police officer. Now, they're working on the theories of, well, if this was a homicide, and we really like to believe it is, then uh, there must have been a cover-up by the family for 10 years, and that police officer would have known, and he would be involved in the cover-up, and blah, blah. You know, it went on and on, and it just got a life of its own. I would say it's, it's one theory which then built other theories on it. So they started this major investigation. As it went on and the evidence came in, um, nothing supported all of these speculations. And that was totally disregarded as it went. So at the end of the day. That's what we call a witch hunt. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. And, and the motivations were either boredom. But when the, when the complaints commissioner got it, it was exciting. What is more exciting than a 10-year cover-up of, of a homicide by a policeman? You don't get this stuff. Anyway, I was uh, sort of cued quite early on that I'd be getting this file. And... Um, which was really improper. I shouldn't have been cued on it. But, you know, this would be one that, that uh, you know, pay attention to. <laughs> I get the file and I'm anticipating it's going to, uh, you know, and I'm reading this thing and there's no evidence that supports this theory, these theory upon theories upon theories. They did, uh, they rattled the family. They got a search, um, a wiretap uh warrant and then they tell the family it's all under investigation again hoping they'll talk uh what they hear is that the, the family is puzzled like what's going on so the, the it, it's it supports that the family was never in collusion <laughs> you know this sort of counter evidence comes and, and the theory is it's all blown out of the water so i get it and i thought maybe there's something wrong i spent two days going through that evidence again and again and again and again I phoned up the lead investigator and I said, what the hell's going on? There's no evidence here. And literally said, I'm just doing as I'm told. I phoned up the deputy chief in the department. And I said, you know, this thing is 
crap. And it's going to blow up in our face because there's been some people uh, arrested for investigative purposes. These are illegal arrests, blah, 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 blah. And um, anyway, um, <laughs> as it was, because the complaints commissioner heard where I was going with it, he literally took the file back from me and gave it to his favorite uh, chief, police chief who always found fault, right? Right. They literally fired the police member. He finds, he goes over the file, finds that there was a cover up. Uh, I'm just shocked. Um, they fire the police officer. It ends up at a public hearing in front of a very credible judge, like a year later, who says, not even on a balance of probabilities is there any homicide here. There, so there's nothing that ever could have been covered up, reinstates the guy, the whole thing. And I'm thinking, if I had a police recruit who, who, who couldn't figure out that there's no homicide here, I've got a problem. Like it was so basic. And so I had to really wonder, um, and that was the first of a series of, of examples I was running into about the politics and the agenda of the complaints commissioner. And another one which will help people understand sort of the dynamics was um, a police chief uh, who was flirting consensually with the wife of a married member, okay? Both of them are flirting with each other over the phone. All right. Not exactly professional conduct, whatever you want to call it. Um, the complaints commissioner, oh, and, and the, the police board hears about it, the employer and the police chief uh, throws himself on the sword, improper behavior, retires, it's over. It's an employment workplace issue. The Police Act and the OPCC are here to govern public trust duties with the public. This has got nothing to do with the public. Anyway, the commissioner gets a hold of it. This is really cool. It's a police chief. And it's, you know, the Me Too movement and who knows what, right? There's power differentials. Starts an investigation. The member gets a lawyer, the chief. It goes to the appeal court in British Columbia. And uh, the justice on behalf of them says, look, this is an employment matter which could happen in any workplace. The commissioner should rethink spending, uh, you know, it's got nothing to do with police work. They're spending tax dollars investigating something that's resolved. The chief has retired. You know, people are actually says people are going to be hurt if this is continued, et cetera, et cetera. The commissioner basically goes, screw you to the courts, carries on, gets his favorite, uh, <laughs> one of his favorite adjudicators, um, who then post-retirement um, demotes the chief to constable. <laughs> yeah, how do you do that? I read that on your blog. I was curious. You read that? I didn't yeah, even know something like, like that was even possible. Well, that gets media attention. Right. So it's headline media stuff about the complaints commissioner doing this good work on something that's very trendy in the news. But this is not at all the purpose of, of that agency. And it was so unfair to um, all of the people involved. So anyway, these are those are just two stories. Uh, there's many more. Uh, I could go on all day. So what, what it began to dawn on me uh, deeply 
was that this structuring of uh, an outside agency, people who, who don't really have a stake in policing, they certainly don't have a stake in the outcome of policing, you know, um, an effective force that provides security for the public uh, law and order. That, that's not on their agenda. Uh, they develop their own agendas. Uh, they don't have the knowledge and, and they get their own agendas. That said, I still felt, I still hadn't got over the uh, belief that you had to have civilian involvement. So when I was working on my master's, I, I, I thought, you know, maybe it's what we've designed. Maybe what it is, is we need to look at what's the component of civilian involvement that will build the public confidence. Is it the, the processing of the complaints? Is it uh, who does the investigation? Is it the adjudication? Is it the uh, sanction part? Is it the appeals? Like what part of, of it um, is important for public confidence? What's the connection? And then we can get rid of the other parts and then maybe we can uh, build something that works. And so I, uh, I did the research <laughs> and I was, I was actually really surprised that, that first of all, there's no literature, uh, no research um, that I could find that, that had any um, examination of the correlation between these types of public examinations or citizen or exterior, whatever you want to call them, and the level of, of confidence in the police or trust in the police. But there was a, a body of, of um, literature that spoke to things that do generate trust in the police. And there's a body of literature that looked at, if you will, the performance of uh, civilian oversight uh, across North America and in Europe um, and how they'd been performing. And that was super fascinating because when I started to read about the failure of civilian bodies for, for decades now in, in really achieving anything to better policing, uh, that was really a wake up. It's like, wow. So, and, and that confidence in the police really had to do with, with quality service, uh, personal contacts and engagement with the police. That was, was most important of it. So I, I began to think about where did this idea come from if it's not to increase public confidence this idea of civilian law where does it come from and so i, I kind of took a brief look and I, I can do it very quickly at at the history of policing so we can at least understand why this started and the first thing is policing is not that old it's less than 200 years old modern policing it started in 1829 in england with london metro this idea of um uh, police should be uh the police are the public and the public are the police is what Robert Peel said. And, and it, there should be this consent to be policed by the public. So it's kind of a, an interesting idea. Yeah, um, I think that, I think, I think, and most people will understand that part of it, right? It makes sense when you think, all right, if you, if you're back in those days and you don't have an organized police force, um, you, you've, Generally, like in the U.S., you had posses, you had deputies, you had people being deputy, you know, being deputized to go do what everybody else really wants done. And, and so you entrust a certain number of people with that responsibility to do what everybody wants done. Yeah. So so it developed from there. And um, 
what what the literature says is is over the decades there were problems because you've now given the group of people um, authority, power, that's kind of stuff. And so there were there were cycles of uh, public alarm over uh, abuse of force, over corruption, over um, taking stuff, um, all that kind of stuff. And there would be these sort of waves of reform. So first of all, it was, well, let's uh, select better people. Um, well, let's pay them more so that they don't need to act that way. Uh, let's up the training and so forth and so on. And that these were cyclic patterns throughout um, the West. Uh, it was the 1960s that this idea that there had to be more direct public engagement and control of police that started to take root. Um, uh, the race riots, for instance, there was, and I, I remember as a kid, you know, you, you'd sort of see complex social, they were co obviously complex social issues. And, and the police were this, this heavy-handed force that was just trying to impose this uh, order. And so the and the media was, of course, starting to um, to be much more influential because uh, you know, the Vietnam War was on our TV every night. And so were the race riots. And so was uh, police brutality as it was cast. So um, there, there tended to be this uh, this movement. And, and there were, of course, there was more citizen uh, engagement in, in all the rights movements, uh, gay rights, uh, women's uh, rights. Um, war protests, civil rights movements. So this involvement of, of people in process, I, I think, became an ideological bent. There wasn't like a business case. It was an ideological bent. And then we saw that, at least up in Canada here, in, in the um, really take root in the 90s. With, and I mentioned the Opal Commission. That was really... Um, when it started to be, well, what does it look like? And everyone just assumed it was, uh, by then, a principle that was kind of obvious. On the governance side, that's the other aspect. Um, I don't know what it was like in the States, but in British Columbia, for, for a long, the longest time, we had a civilian body between government and um, the police chief called police boards. Um, they were supposed to uh, isolate um, the police from political influence. Uh, I mean, we could talk for hours on that because that was just a fallacy too. Every time something serious came uh, that was all over the papers, the provincial government would absolutely ignore the police boards and hold a public inquiry or step in in some manner. And, and I remember being union president once and, and uh, we had a, some new police board members and, and the chief of the day said, you know, go for go for coffee with uh, the union president there. You know? <laughs> yeah. and, and one of these ladies asked me, she said, well, what's the most important thing about my job? And I said, there's only one thing that's important in your job. And that's who you pick for chief. <laughs> that's it. I said, they run the show. They know the organization. They know policing. You don't. And I said, but here's your challenge. You don't know anything about the people in the organization. Who to promote for chief? How could you? So good. <laughs> yeah, it's good to know that merit commission, you know, here in the U.S., they call the, they're called merit commissions. And, you know, it's, I'm, it's a little bit different in every state, but Indiana has merit laws. And based on the size of your city or the way your city is structured, you have these civilian merit commissions set up. And so like, an example for our, you know, like my, where I was a chief in our agency, I was appointed by the mayor 
but from the rank of sergeant all the way up to deputy chief were all merited positions that the civilian review board wow. based on you know and now based on merit rules the way things were laid out how you're promoted you have a, a written test score you have performance evaluations you have uh seniority and then you have these interviews with the board and you know the the idea is right i think what you're getting at it if you have a good representation across the city. You have professionally oriented people that sit on these boards that have the community's best interests at heart. Then they, you know, will intuitively or instinctively know, you know who are the right people to promote. And uh, yeah, that's a very difficult. That's a very difficult position to be put in. So I certainly understand. Like and. <laughs> you know, she probably didn't realize what she got herself into at that point. Yeah, I mean, I, I really felt for police board members because um, it wasn't a real job. <laughs> they're they're not selected for um, knowledge of policing. They're not selected for knowledge of organizations or uh, for particular knowledge in organizational change. Um, they're generally picked for political reasons, uh, re diversity representation, um who knows what the odd one seemed to be um who they knew in government i don't know so it's yeah. uh, the governance body uh you know is, is an issue the um, provincial government here held uh, another examination of policing last year it was a, a committee of uh backbenchers um spent about a year looking at issues. And I did a presentation to them and I said, you know, you can forget the uh, the police board, get rid of them. They're, they're, they don't serve a purpose. Uh, the evidence is, is that government will step in when it has to, to look at a serious issue because um, politically that's where it falls. They've, they've always done so in the past. And um, administratively, I don't see any issue with them uh, reporting directly to uh, the Attorney General or Solicitor General Police Services Division. When it comes to operational decisions or investigations, that's another matter. But the law here at least um, separates government involvement from those sorts of things. Those actually are, are uh, answerable to right now the Office of the Police Complaints Commissioner, which uh, I, I think is not the model. So, yeah, I, 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 so I think at this point, it, it's fair to say, at least when I wrote that paper, that, that I was really stunned at um, the fact that, that throughout North America, we've adopted this, uh, this ideology has prevailed about civilian uh, oversight of professional conduct and uh, has absolutely failed. And it's brought us to this position, uh, as with that LinkedIn post, that we've probably never had the... Uh, this measure of, of civilian oversight and things are getting worse in terms of confidence. We've got rec recruiting, retention problems. We've got uh, defunding movements. You know, you've got all sorts of crazy things going on. So I did become aware of um, what I think is the direction that I think policing needs to go. And it, it's interesting because when when the Opal Commission was on, there was one voice at the table, uh, a professor from the University of British Columbia, um, Charles Ungerleiter, 
a really nice guy, bright guy. And he said, quietly, you guys are all wrong. Um, you should professionalize policing. And, and I, I remember, I, maybe I wasn't too polite, but I said, no, I like it. You're totally missing the point here. The citizens have to be involved. You know, this is just fundamental, you know, because uh, I bought the, uh, the belief as well. Anyway, recently I had someone point out to me that in Ontario, uh, Justice Tulloch, who uh, had done an inquiry, a uh, very bright man, said, you know, um, Ontario is having a ton of issues with these civilian bodies and they're failing. And he said, if we want the police to, to act as professionals, we need to treat them as professionals. They should have a professional college of policing, which is independent of any police service, any police agency, but like uh, doctors, lawyers, dentists, and there's a list in, in British Columbia includes locksmiths and who knows who else. Um, you need a professional college that is independent, set up uh, under legislation that uh, is required to set the standards for that profession, uh, and is of course made up of professionals, that licenses members and has the mandate to um, investigate potential breaches of those standards and to sanction, including removing those licenses. And, and the more I thought about that, his recommendations, which he's made twice now, they really make absolute sense. Um, because a professional college has an absolute stake, as all professional colleges do, uh, in what is delivered to the public. And uh, before I carry on on that, though, I, I, it was an example I gave you last time of sort of the current situation, which is um, if, if we think civilians should be performing this role, it's, it, it struck me it's, it's like uh, a hospital and you've, you've got a, a team of uh, skilled doctors performing a surgery and uh, there's a complaint lodged about it. And who investigates it? Well, it's, it's a group of civilians without medical background, without knowing anything about an operating room or how an operation should unfold or what the, the complexities are and how you make those decisions or how a hospital runs. And they're the ones who are going to come out and say uh, this was good or not good and potentially sanction or dismiss the doctors. And that's kind of the model we have now. Yeah. And you begin I've, to wonder why- I've watched they, ER. I know what they should be doing. <laughs> ER. I mean, why would they? And then if you set that body up as a permanent group, man, they, they've got to have some work. They've got to find some fault. They've got to, you know, they've got to speak. So it, it's kind of a, the current situation is a bit crazy. So a professional college, uh, I, I think it's really the way forward to get away from the politics, to get away from the self-interest that uh, that isn't the, the interest of the profession. And um, I think that the, the mandate should also include uh, moving policing forward in, in my view, particularly developing a uh, competent uh, and a sort of uh, culture, leadership culture within policing. That's the one thing that's, um, still missing.
Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because in the U.S., right, the we had the police commission back in the 60s and that kind of led to like a, a big wave of reform. And then it wasn't again until 2014, 2015, at the end of the Obama administration, where they commissioned the 21st century policing initiative. And that that was, um, you know, there was a lot of controversy, and, and, you know, it, I, you know, publicly chiefs just don't like to talk about it a lot because there's no right thing you can say publicly, because if you spoke out against it, then you were going to be you, basically you were just you're standing on the mountain and you're going to just start taking arrows from all directions. It's like, Oh, you don't care. You don't think anything's wrong, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I just kind of took a position there. Look, and I would say this to our, our civilians in our community, people that would come into our, our citizens police Academy. I, I, you know, just took the position that policing has never been better, but it doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of improvement that we can make, or there's things that we should be looking to improve upon, but it's this, it's the idea. And I think maybe this is kind of at the core of wherever, you know, where we're at this conversation, there is this idea that something is wrong in policing and that we just can't trust the police. And, and I, you know, America, I had a friend of mine, he, he's now a professor. He was uh, one of my colleagues years ago, but, you know, he, 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 said something I've always thought was very profound. And he was like, look, he's like, America, in you know, in particular, I'm sure it's the same way in Canada, right? It was a country that was basically built on the, the principle of defying authority and saying, mm -hmm. you know what, I don't trust authority. I'm going to go do it myself. So you're trying to establish a uh, you know, policing really is just, it's kind of always been this nebulous thing that's just kind of always been, in, you know, been kind of pushed in these positions where you have social issues and then you have political issues and then you have the police that always seem to be right in the middle of it. And we're at times our own worst enemies where we step in and say, yeah, we'll fix that problem. And then we start taking on responsibilities for things that, that aren't crime related, that aren't disorder related. Um, that, you know, may, there may be some quality of life things there. And, and so really, you know, we're kind of into this crisis of I identity, like, who are we and what are we supposed to be doing out here? And by the way, um, how are we going to train? And how, how, how do I know what you're going to want tomorrow when we can't even decide on what, what we're supposed to be doing today? And, you know, it's a bit hyperbole here, but you know, that's, that's interesting. And, you know, in 2000, well, very early on in, in uh, President Obama's administration, right? He had beer gate. <laughs> they called it beer gate. Do you remember that where you had it oh. in it was in Cambridge where a, a white officer showed up to an alarm call at a house where there was a, a African-American professor and they got into a, a dispute. And, you know, the, you know, there was accusations that he was the, the officer was a racist. You know, and then, you know, the, the Obama uh, solution was to bring them both to the White House and sit down over a beer. And it's pretty interesting to go back and I don't want to get into it, but I did read a story that kind of like that, that kind of got into the details after the fact. And, um, you know, but it kind of set up, it, it was, it was really one of the first times where I think there was a, a legitimizing from from the White House itself, that there is a problem in policing. 
uh, and particularly as it comes to race and um you know then it wasn't you know just a few years down the road where you had the ferguson incident with michael brown and darren wilson and you know that that case i i like to remind people there's still people in the states that walk around that that think that michael brown was shot in the back with his hands up you know even though there was three separate grand jury investigations that that showed that that's that wasn't the factual circumstances that didn't happen you know that was a lie that got perpetuated it got blown up in the into the media and yet you know there was i think the next big step where man you know we not only who do we trust to do the investigation and who do we trust to do it the right way and that again of course the media just you know, they jumped all over that. It's got all the elements of, of a great news story. It's going to get people tuned in. People are going to watch and, you know, who cares how many lives we destroy at the end of this, right? You got cities burning around the U S and, um, you know, you never want to let the truth get in the way of a good story sometimes. So if, if I can give you a little comment on some of what you've said there, um, Like systemic racism, um, that was an issue up here too. There, there was just uh, a couple of indigenous folks. Uh, grandfather was a granddaughter uh, trying to open up a bank account. Bank phones the police. Fraud in progress. The members come and then handcuff them. Uh, Asian members, by the way, uh, come and handcuff the two and and uh, find out it's not a fraud and take the handcuffs off. So. Based on my knowledge, you know, the, the police academies go a little too far on security issues sometimes. Like, you know, you got to use a little logic. Um, but this was now systemic racism. And this yeah. went on news forever. The problem wasn't that maybe there was or wasn't. The union president and the chief constable come out publicly and say, there's no racism in policing. I wrote them both and said, don't you get that systemic racism isn't conscious racism? It's unconscious. And there's uh, a case from uh, Nova Scotia, um, Kirk Johnson, a boxer, world-class boxer, gets stopped by the police too many times, big inquiry, they get expert evidence. And and basically what's determined is there's systemic racism throughout this continent and and it's not a you know it's a bad thing yeah but it's not something we consciously do we we all watch movies we all uh, have conversations we all grow up watching westerns where the indians lose you know like it's it's just there and it should be fixed so i actually wrote an op-ed that got published and said you know it would be helpful if you just say hey maybe there is systemic racism and uh, we gotta if it's there let's find out and let's fix it and that, that's what came out of the Kirk Johnson thing is, is the commissioner says um, it's management's responsibility to canvas their communities to see could there be any, any form and to fix it before it happens. So what this loops back to is, is the leadership issue that I think policing has is police, like in Vancouver, uh, one day they decide they need uh, somebody with muscles to keep peace and order. 
within a couple of weeks, they need two more. He becomes the chief, you know, and the years go by and no one's paying attention to uh, training and development of the leadership culture, unlike the military, which over hundreds of years developed that. So I think we have uh, a need for uh, the development of, of a leadership culture that doesn't get a uh, knee jerk into defending that uh, knows how to work media more. Um, just, you know, throughout the continent, we need to, I would love to see, and I, I think rank and file would love to see more uh, articulate, assertive, clear thinking police leaders that call bullshit when it's there and stand up for their members, but not blindly, but with sophistication and intelligence. Um, so I think that's there. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, there. so I think that's a good point. And to go back to like the, uh, like I, I, the movie Platoon, mm -hmm. at, at the end, you know, you've got the, the, it was such a cool movie. I love that movie, but in, you know, there's that line where uh, Charlie Sheen's character, you know, he's, he's, he's leaving the battlefield on the helicopter for the last time. And, you know, he's like, I think now looking back, you know, but, you know, uh, what, how did that, how does that line go? I think now looking back, we did not fight the enemy. We fought ourselves and the enemy was in each of us. And, you know, I, I, it's it's so I, I think that that kind of philosophy really carries over and it's a good way to describe policing because policing is a lot like that right you have a lot of people you you know you've in platoon you've got Barnes and Elias you know or kind of like that you know the, the hard charger and then the easy you know the you know the kind of the the more the hippie personality like yeah man it's gonna be all good and you know they're fighting for positioning and it's not, but it's not just in policing where those mindsets exist, right? They exist everywhere in all segments of society, you know, and that's just kind of, you know, it just, again, it goes back to the point where, uh, where I think you're, you're spot on is that the professionalization is really the only way out, you know, and it's, it's really the way through is that you build on successes. You learn from failures, you, you know, you acknowledge mistakes you acknowledge the things that, you know, historically policing has screwed up, you know, or where we've gone off the rails, maybe sometimes with good intentions, some, sometimes not, but, um, you know, when it comes down to, but when it comes down to individual cases, or the only thing that really should matter is what the facts tell us. And yeah. when, when you, when you look at the facts and, and the, and the, those circumstances, then we've got, you know, you know, over a hundred years of case law that guide and decide, you know, you know, really determine where law goes, where policy goes, where training goes. And this is where, um, you know, in the, in the post, uh, you know, Minneapolis days, this is where I got really concerned as a police leader, because I saw everybody wanting to make these huge corrections. Like we've got to change things right now. Like, they, you know, states are talking about, you know, all kinds of reforms, you know, coming down to things like, you know, you got to ban all chokeholds, you know, the chokeholds are just an easy one because mm -hmm. everybody, you know, you know, thinks that, that that's the, that's the, what's causing deaths in police custody. Yeah. And, well, it's, it's developing policy from media representations. 
But, yeah. you know, I don't know anywhere that, that choking the throat is ever taught. <laughs> you know, it's vascular neck restraint, right? Right. Um, so, yeah, it's people don't even know what they're talking about. But that's what that's what's driving it. And and what I've found is is because we don't have, um, in my view, a caliber, uh, a critical mass caliber of leadership, we don't have uh, voices saying, hey, that's crap. That's not going to happen. And so I've seen it up in British Columbia here where we get some of these. Uh, I've talked about the complaints commissioner's office. I have not seen the chiefs of police um, outraged when they see injustice done there. And they should be. They should be principled, in my view, and saying, like, this is absolutely unacceptable. You know, that that case of, of the so-called uh, cover-up of a homicide for 10 years, there should have been some pretty strong words that that came out of that, that that's my my member should not go through that. Look at the evidence. Well, and it was and it was never there. Yeah. Well, you know, why chiefs are afraid to do that. Right. Is because yeah. if you stick your head up out of the foxhole, you know, you become the next target. Uh, it's it's very yeah. easy to make a target of yourself. And so, yeah, uh, I'm not saying that's right, wrong or indifferent. I just it's. um you know, that's the reality because everybody's looking for the next big story. And yeah. Um, well, and careerism no is an issue too, because I, I certainly know, know a lot of the folks who uh, made it up through the ranks and, um, and careerisms, you know, the motive at times. I, I think when we talk about this professional model, though, I, I, I don't think uh, we should leave it with the impression that it's all in-house anymore. Um I, I talk about whatever the review process is of professional conduct, it needs to be suitably transparent. And, and I say that just based on my experience as a discipline authority is uh, many citizens did not want whatever came out of the investigation or the fact that they were even lodged a complaint to be public knowledge. So I, I think there have to be those safeguards that it's um, suitably transparent uh, and also I know that the Law Society in British Columbia a few years back decided that uh, even though they maybe have a dozen lawyers on their conduct review board, they added uh, a handful of civilian folks onto that board. They, they picked them, very qualified uh, folks, so that they would have that voice within the discussions. So I, I, I think... If policing moves to be professional, and, and I agree with your comments, like it is the way forward. To me, it's the only way forward. Um, that some thought has to be given to the structure of it, so that it that it at least uh, has those sorts of elements. Yeah, groupthink groupthink can get you in trouble in a hurry. Yeah, um, and it's it's always good to have somebody with an outside perspective that can challenge your perspective, and. Um, and and I think there was a time where it was okay for some, to challenge other people to challenge what their th thoughts were and do it in a um, in you know more of a Socratic way. But you know anymore now, if like if I challenge something you say, people take it really personally, and they you know it's and that, I think that's just the environment that we live in. We live in a very polarized environment where you're either with me or you're against me, right? And if you're against me, then you know you're my enemy. <laughs> And, yeah, yeah, uh, that, yeah. That doesn't that doesn't help anybody, right? 
Well, I think that's that's really a good descriptor of where we are. I think this this movement like Black Lives Matter and, and defund the police and and more watchdogs. You know, every time I see that in the news, I just gag. Um, it's sending all the wrong messages, and because it's sort of come out of left field somewhat, I I, I see a lot of uh, police organizations uh, circle the wagons and defend, and. Um, I think that's a sign of weakness. Uh, I don't think we should be defending. We should be engaging in discussion and, and uh, know our principles. Um, but it's partially because we don't have a direction. And so I, I think uh, moving towards a professional destination uh, with a vision for that would be helpful. Um, I did write up to the, uh, when I wrote the, uh, and actually I, I was before them, on Zoom as well, the, the provincial committee on on, on the police last year, um, I said that the problem is it's because we don't have a critical mass of, of leadership within policing. It is incumbent on government <laughs> to adopt the vision and create it, and, and that's been the history here um, forever. Whenever there's been a, a significant policing issue, the province will hold an inquiry. And recommendations will come forth. Um, uh, it, it, you don't see uh, the police leadership collectively coming together and saying, "Oh my God, you know, we need to reform this. We need to like systemic discrimination." I would have been quite impressed if they'd said, "Well, obviously, there's going to be some discrimination." <laughs> Systemically, that's we're all Canadians. We're all living in this society, um, and the Kirk Johnson case informs us that we need to do a better job of canvassing where it might be and making sure uh, it doesn't manifest because we've got great people and uh, it's it's our job to train them so that they don't fall into those cracks. Uh, but yeah. that wasn't that wasn't the response. It was it was circling the wagons, denial, and of course then the 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 assault increases. <laughs> So did you um, did you read uh, Radley? Uh, is it Rad? I think it's Radley Balco. Um, he's a New York Times reporter, and he um, in the days leading up to Ferguson, I'm pretty sure it was before Ferguson when the book came out. He wrote the uh, the rise of the warrior cop, um, which I thought was a it was a really interesting book, and it took it, it it had a lot of history, and I thought he did a great job describing the history. Where I thought he kind of went a little bit sideways is that towards the second half of the book. He just he took more of a of an outsider's perspective, and you know, made, I, he made some assumptions that I just thought were where he he had a great opportunity to educate the public on where things should be going in policing, and then just kind of you know went off the cliff with it. But the, you know, this because I got these questions here locally when we're watching what's going on in Ferguson, the the deployment of the National Guard, and and the this now discussion the military cop we're taking all this old military equipment we're deploying it on the streets you know there's tanks driving around on american streets we we don't need tanks and it, again it's a, a an you know another opportunity where there was a really good op i think really good opportunity to learn and to educate each other on what we're doing and why we're doing uh, why we're doing these things. First of all, there is no tanks. I've yet to see a tank drive around on an American street or I don't know, maybe you guys have them up in Canada, you know, maybe, maybe the, the, uh, 
the Royal Mounted Police are now, you know, they got off their horses and got in, got into tanks, right? It's, it, you know, it's, you know, in, in the U.S., we have posse comitatus, which, you know, prohibits the military from deploying on American streets. So I, I would ask, I, I asked this question, I'm like, hey, what, what do the police do when somebody hijacks a tank and goes driving down the freeway running over cars? Yeah. Yeah. How do you stop that? Oh, well, that doesn't happen. That would never happen. Well, yeah, it has happened. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, what do you do when the guy builds the zombie apocalypse uh, truck, you know, vehicle up armors a van and goes driving around on a shooting spree and attacks a police department? You know, the only thing yeah. that's going to penetrate it is a 50 caliber rifle um, or the, the the equipment that they're wearing is intimidating. Um, and the example uh, is the helmets that are that police departments were getting through what they call the DRMO pro program, like the demilitarized equipment. I'm like, well, you know, when, you know, those helmets are, they're Kevlar helmets and, you know, the taxpayers have already paid for them. You know, do we just throw them away or do we put them to good use? The same thing with rifles. Yeah. The police officers shouldn't be carrying rifles. And I'm just like, well, you know, domestically no. we're responsible yeah. for the security of our streets when, if there is a military attack, if there is, you know, you have the West Hollywood shootout, you know, what happens when people fly planes in the buildings? You know, yeah. that's, that's not the military, that's the law enforcement. So this is kind of where it gets into, well, now we start having these mixed messages about what you want us to do and what our mission but is. But this is where where the, the answer should be a, a very articulate and um, assertive response from leadership, in my view. Because you're you're describing the right equipment for different situations. I mean, they, there's some situations. This this is sort of unfolding in um, in the Maritimes where we had uh, that gunman a year or two ago who killed I don't know how many people. And there's such criticism that uh, the RCMP, who were the provincial police force there, weren't didn't have carbines. And I know in Vancouver, uh, there, for years now, there's been a proliferation of, of carbines in the cars because there has to be yes. when those circumstances arise. But everyone out there has got an answer based on partial information. Uh, you know, another, you know, a more a softer example was um, there was some criticism a few years ago about uh, uniform police officers in schools. The school liaison officers, they were called, and I, I was their boss for four years. Um had to get out of the schools. And so the school board, which happened to elect a bunch of who knows what, they vote to get them out of the schools. The new mayor has put them back in. And, and what was the reason? Because some ethnic groups, some immigrant groups were terrified by police in uniforms. So why would your solution be to pull them out and let the you know the gang recruitment go on and the drug dealing and you know et cetera et cetera. Um, why wouldn't you then bring those people together and say we need to have some discussions so that you can understand why the police are there, who they are, and overcome your own fears? But they actually took all the officers out of the schools, and I thought that's insane. So I didn't see police leadership. Um, really stepping up on that and saying, no, that ain't going to happen. It happened here in the States too, in a lot of places. And now of course they're putting them right back. Yeah. It kind of goes back to the point, like sometimes people just need an enemy and you know, they, they need a cause and 
the police yeah. are an easy target. But well, yeah, so here, yeah, police are an easy target because yeah. I, I think all of this unparalleled criticism is is itself relatively new of a few years, and I don't think policing as a whole has really um, appreciated the threat until recently. Now we have recruiting issues, retainment issues. Uh, I think we have operational issues. Messaging uh, issues, yeah. And, you know, I hate to harp, you know, because we've sort of drifted into the leadership side, but, but you know, as, as a young lieutenant when I was in, in, in the infantry, I mean, I asked myself, why am I in charge? I mean, it's all about principles and, and moral leadership and um, and effective leadership. It's leading. And that's something that... that um, that's missing in policing. It hasn't evolved yet. I don't want to be critical and say, you know, there's something wrong with policing that way. If we look at the history of policing, it just hasn't evolved yet. And that's part of the professionalization piece is um, goes hand in hand with that is, is raising the level of, of leadership so that there are responses to some of these um, crazy outside uh, forces that are relatively new as well. Yeah. And, and again, kind of to the point and going back to the militarization issue, right? Well, part of, part of the, the, the black eye that we get from that is because again, we earn it where we take some of that equipment and in, in one-off cases here or there, the, the equipment is misused and mm -hmm. it becomes part of the story. And then it becomes the story. And now it's like, well, why are you even using that? Why do you even have that anyway? And so you got one camp, especially when it comes to like the armored vehicles and stuff like that. People, people around here really, um, at least in my area, there was big controversy for years over over whether police should have armored armored vehicles or not. You know, is it too offensive? Is it too militaristic? But um, I'll go to SWAT teams, like tactical teams, for example, and this this kind of goes into training and the professionalization. Like we, you have in in the U.S., you've got. And maybe Canada works under the, you know, you have the National Tactical Officers Association. I know uh, the Canadian organizations belong to the NTOA, but, you know, back in my tactical days, you know, they they wrote, and this has been in the early 2000s, they were looking to create some standards across the U.S. for having, you know, tiered level teams, like a, like a, a tier one team would be your LAPD SWAT your NYPD, your full-time teams that train full-time that can have hostage rescue training, that they, they have all the specialized equipment. They can do all, they have all the equipment and training to do what needs to be done. And then they have the time and the resources to be able to train and rehearse and practice and do all the things that you would need to do. Now there, there is, that's pretty cool. Right. And those guys are, are very high speed. They're very professional uh, and it's, and it, not like what's depicted sometimes on television that they're a bunch of cowboys. I mean, these guys are very, very good at what they do. Guys and gals, I should say. So now you have somebody in in a department maybe far removed from that where maybe there are 20 officers, maybe there's 30, maybe there's more, but they don't have standards. They don't have firearms qualification standards. They don't have physical fitness standards. Uh, they mm -hmm. don't have... Uh, interview requirements. They're not stress tested. They're not going, they're not following any of the guidelines that the N2A says, hey, this is what we want you to do. But yet, what do they have? They have SWAT teams and they get this equipment. And 
where do we see things go wrong sometimes? And and that that's kind of where I'm saying these these things are self-inflicted. And it'd be like, I've always kind of thought that. Like even even you know, with you know, my organization, we trained to those standards, and that was a requirement. You either you either made the standards or you didn't. If you didn't, you were off, you know, you put on probation, then you were off the team. And you know, that was even controversial going through that process. Like, look, you know, there because either going to have either have a standard or you don't either you want to do it the right way or you don't and um yeah it's it just it's still to this day right those those standards never got adopted there's never been national pressure to to get them adopted um but yet we still see the same mistakes being made you know time and time again and and i guess maybe to our earlier point where a, a civilian commission can come in and, and make some of these determinations right, wrong, or indifferent, but it's always going to play out in, in the court of law, right? <laughs> so Boy, absolutely. the criminal, whether it's a criminal issue or whether it's a tort issue, yeah. right? It's, it's always yeah. going to play out there regardless. And, and it doesn't matter what I, as the chief say, it doesn't matter what, you know, the civilian review board says, it only matters what, what's presented, you know, in the, in the court and what the court decides. And that that's the ultimate authority. So there's always well, been yeah. a check and balance. Well, everything you have just described um, convinces me even more of the need for a professional body that's separate from police agencies, because who who is going to um, provide the the uh, the expert uh, professional views over deficiencies? Yeah. Um, if if it isn't an exterior body saying, well, why are these small agencies not uh, collaborating to create you know, or following stand whatever they need to do, um, no one's going to say it. Something's going to go sideways that 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 shouldn't. And um, I find it hard to relate to that a little bit because because <laughs> um, I was on the emergency re response team in Vancouver, and um, for years now, there's there's always one team on duty. Um, and that's a resource that uh, you know you couldn't live without. There, there's there's going to be at some point a call that will require that skill level, that team functioning, and that equipment. Um, but you know, part of this is is marketing and branding too, because we ended up with two armored vehicles, and uh, the uh, public affairs folks uh, made sure they were never called uh, you know armored anything. So they were you know public safety retrieval. I don't know what they were called. <laughs> Uh, they would do press stuff to, you know, impress the the public on on, you know, how they how they might be used, you know, if there was a live shooter, if there was an officer down, whatever, you know, we could save people, you know. So they really got in front of the criticism, and uh, it's just not been there. And, and every time it's used in a in in a good way, it, it's on the media. So um, there was one thing one of the chiefs who uh, who came built a public affairs unit that uh, he really understood uh, the media side of things. Um, yeah, so I, I think, uh, I mean, from what you describe, standards, uh, compliance, uh, even uh, the rational organizational resources, I would think a state professional college would be the one who would provide that kind of feedback. Yeah, you know, one of my earlier guests, I had a, Tim Horty, the executive director of the Indiana Law Enforcement Academy. And in the States, there's generally, you have a centralized academy where new hires go. So individual departments hire them, they send them to the state academy. 
now your larger metropolitan areas that can sustain, uh, you know, where it's financially prudent and just, you know, operationally imperative, they'll run their own academies. Uh, there's six, six total academies. So one main academy and, and five satellite academies in the state. And, you know, his job is so challenging because you're taking the, the public's expectation that when, a, when an officer goes through a training academy, when they come out, like they're, uh, you know, they're a highly experienced, fully trained police officer. And it's like, well, they are trained and uh, they are competent, but they're competent at a basic level. Like they're an entry level police officer. You, you, uh, you just, I, I don't care who you are. Right. I mean, the very, very few people that are ever get in, in the first couple of years going to police like they've got 10 years of experience. And in a, in a place where you grew up policing a very large metropolitan environment where you're very busy, you're handling a lot of calls, there's a lot of pressure. Well, then you're just, you're just forged a little quicker, right? And you probably have, you have a lot of expertise around you, people that have been there that have done that. You have uh, like, uh, that you have longevity, you have that wisdom, you have the understanding of why you are where you are, right? And people that understand policing and smaller communities don't necessarily, they have a hard time maintaining uh, staff throughout the throughout the entirety of the career. So they have higher turnover rates, they have oftentimes less resources. And so it's it's very, it's a very different professionalization process. So I, I don't know, uh, you know, there, I think there's always a place for a centralized academy, but I I do like what you're saying. And this is kind of where my question, you know, it's kind of a rambling into a question. But if you could, if you could just kind of start with a clean slate, like here's, you know, here's your palette of colors and here's your canvas, um, create, create what you think would be the best way to um, build a, a, a police department from scratch um, that that's going to get you the best product, the best return on investment. That's not a hard question. That's an easy question. I, I did a LinkedIn post, uh, my hopes for policing in the province for 2023. Um, because policing has been built uh, over time and the unfolding of the population centers and the economy and et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, if you had a blank slate, First thing I would I would I would have one police department, one police agency for the entire province. That's how our ambulance services deliver. Um, organized crime doesn't honor municipal boundaries. When we have uh, we've had the odd riot up here, um, people come from all over. So what you know, uh, crime travels. So I would definitely have one police agency. And I would have it administratively report directly to government. Get rid of all these civilian bodies that are, are, are ineffectual. At the end of the day, the provincial government always involves itself on serious issues. Operationally, it has to have its independence, which it has in law. I would um, establish, there is one academy for the province right now, <clears throat> but we have a blend of municipal forces and then we have the National Police Force under contract providing um, some municipalities with uh, municipal police forces and the province with a provincial police force. Uh, that's beginning to change a little bit. I would uh, end those contracts and, and again, 
one BC provincial police force. So I would call that the rationalization of policing, where you can look at um, specialized services, emergency response teams, uh, canine units, uh, specialized investigators, where should they be? How should they be deployed? What areas, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You just do it as a business model that makes sense. Um, I would definitely start uh, a professional college and would bring the accountability, the setting of standards, the licensing of officers, um, and the investigation of con professional conduct um, to the college and have them, and, and one of the mandates would be the development of a, an appropriate, competent, assertive um, police management. And that's gonna take years, police leadership, it's gonna take years, but it's gotta start. Uh, it is the future. So those are, those are the key pieces I would do. Um, yeah, so you would be a lightning rod down here in the States because what you're describing is like as a national police force and you know, in, in the U.S., there's almost 18,000 different police departments, you know, all from one or two two officer departments all the way up to, you know, NYPD, you know, that 30. Well, I would go state by, I would go state by state, not national. I mean, there are countries where there it's a bit national. I think Britain is a bit national and Japan's a bit that way. And then they break it down. Um, but I, 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 I'm not sure that we're ready for a national police force. Um uh, our constitution, um, law enforcement is uh, provincial responsibility. Yeah, well, I, I'm not saying I don't necessarily disagree with you. I definitely think that you've, of course, of course we started this conversation right with the, you know, uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, basically, yeah. right? So, yeah, if if you shrink down, right, and then you get the wrong leadership, uh, so leadership is right. It, it's everything. If you get the wrong leadership, then definitely. Uh, you can influence things in the wrong direction. So having a good check and balance, I think, is always going to be critical. But I do see the value in that because you can uh, you can really, I, th I think, shift your resources where they're needed the most. There's and and I'll go back to my SWAT team issue, right? Like like just describing that issue, SWAT alone. Um, mm -hmm. You know, not every police department needs a SWAT team. Um, and if you're not going to train to the standards, then does it really, you know, should you, you know, as a, as an administrator, right, as a police leader, should you even take on that, that, that liability and that responsibility, knowing that you've, you know, that, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's almost a bit negligent supervision. Um, you know, there's probably some other things in there, but where you realize, hey, we know what the national standards are, but we're not training to them. Well, why aren't you? Well, we don't have sufficient resources. So, but but I would argue I would argue that every jurisdiction should have access to a SWAT team. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and 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 so and again, this is where you have to have you have to have inside knowledge, right? You really do. I mean, doing this, trying to do this from the outside probably wouldn't work. Um, and, and here, and I'll say hostage rescue for an example, right? If you have the time. If you can secure a scene and call in the, the the most highly trained, best equipped unit in the state to come in and, and handle that, well, then why wouldn't you? That just makes perfect sense. Now, you're not always afforded those that time. And what gets in the way there? Well, that's jurisdictional boundaries. It's egos. It's 
you know, we can handle this and we got this. I don't need someone else coming to help me. And so that that can be a little bit of an issue. But again, when it talks, you know, when you're talking about resources, well, if you, if you consolidate, which I think maybe we're talking about smart consolidation in a way and then smart professionalization. Um, and in that, you talk about the professional college. We mentioned this when we were chatting on our pre-podcast discussion, but I've also had this conversation with a few other guests. In the military, before you get promoted to sergeant, they send you to leadership school where you go. It's a, I went through it. It's a, it was a three-week course. And they made me go through it, even though they knew that I was separating. So I was going to be getting out because I was getting ready to go to college. And uh, I was up in Alaska at the time. And they were like, well, you're going to go through the school anyway, because who knows, you might come back, you might change your mind, you might stay. So you're going to go through this leadership training, three weeks of training, NCO preparatory school. And you can't, you're not eligible to become an NCO until you've completed that training. And then once you have completed that training, you still have to test and go through the competitive process. But we don't do that in policing. And I think that's a lot of times people don't understand that. Maybe some agencies do, and they have, some agencies have better processes than others. But for the most part, if you're if you're technically and tactically proficient, you generally get promoted. Um, right. And, right, right. And that doesn't always yeah. necessarily equate to good leadership. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that struck me very early in my career is, is the lack of, uh, at that time, uh, training for supervisors. There was none. And um, training for managers, there was none. Uh, over the years, I was in the union, we actually pushed for um, training at both levels. And uh, now there is uh, supervisory training, which is both um, you know, street uh, tactical stuff, uh, some administrative stuff and so forth. I think it should be a lot more, my bias. As for management training, there is critical incident uh, command training um there is public order training for some people um there are uh the the management of major investigations that sort of you know those sort of skill sets for appropriate people but in my view what's really missing is is, is leadership training is um you know whether that involves so much and in the military that was um when i was there i mean we spent a year going through uh leadership training along with the tactical and all that. So I always looked at my bosses in the military with, with such respect and because I knew they knew stuff <laughs> and could do stuff that I did. And it didn't take me long in, in the military to, or in the, in the police to, um, I, I began to wonder like, like, you know, what do they know or don't know? Um, so yeah, it's quite interesting. And, and I, I don't mean to be uh, sort of negatively Critical of the state of police leadership because I, I, I think it's understandable when we look at the history of policing. It, it's just a product of where policing has evolved over the last two hundred years, um, and it, it's it's time that we really ramped it up. I, I know locally here they're saying, well, you know, you need a master's degree now to move into the executive, and you know, so you know, a master's in in whatever it doesn't mean that you're you've learned anything about leadership. Um, it just says that, that your, 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 um, academic skills are really good. 
you know, and, and that's an asset that's important. But but we need something that that relates to policing uh, so that we can um, develop systems that we can uh, keep evolving rather than reverting to uh, a defending posture, which is quite typically done. And I think right now we're already in, in, at, at a reaching a fork in the roads because what I see is uh, more calls for um, citizen involvement, exterior, uh, you know, watchdog functions, um, all that more governance, that sort of thing. And, and so, you know, defund the police. Uh, we need to control them more. And, and that is, is diminishing the ability of police to, to be effective. And uh, I honestly think our democracy is, becomes more at risk as a result of that. We, we, we have a right to safe neighborhoods and, and, a, and a professional police force. Um, and so we need a vision of the future. And and that vision, I think, is, um, as Justice Tullock in Ontario expressed, is, is a professional police force that means a professional uh, body, uh, independent of, of any police agency, I would think at the state or province level for now. And um, not to say you can't, between them, set national standards, which I think uh, you should, let's say for active shooters, there, there really should be a national training standard and, and, and uh, tactical standard. But um, we need policing to mature in the sense that when you mature, you take ownership and you are accountable to yourself. And so professionalizing policing, having a college that sets the standards, um, certifies members, and that's, I think, what you're talking about a lot about. What are the standards to which we certify to? And even perhaps certifying agencies, um, certifying leadership, and then having the, the, the capacity to investigate and uh, deal with complaints or deficiencies, which, which could be culpable or non-culpable, and uh, having the ability to take those licenses. And that's what true professions have, lawyers have. Doctors have. I know recently in the in the papers was a very senior lawyer who was disbarred, and I looked at that and I went, "Wow, wow, no cover up. This guy had you know influence and experience, and he acted absolutely against um, the standards of the law society and lost his license." And I thought, you know, they're in good hands. <laughs> Well, that's, that's good. Yeah, it's good that you know they actually stood up for what was right. And that, that, I think in the, in the in the end of the day, public confidence will will not will not flow from every you know headlines that like we have here the watchdogs investigating. They'll come from the profession saying this is what we tolerate and don't tolerate. Yeah. Uh, Jocko wrote about that in his book, Extreme Ownership, right? You get what you oh. tolerate. <laughs> he talks a lot about accountability too. Now, yeah. and here and here's my last point, and uh, then we, maybe we can wrap this up um, because I've brought this up and this this discussion has been had several times, but the, it, the argument when it comes to the use of force, every police officer should be trained to the level of blue belt in jujitsu. Blanket statement gets made. And I think anyone that is that has trained in in jujitsu sees the benefit to that and would be like, yeah, 
uh, a highly competent, trained professional police officer is more likely to be confident in their abilities. Therefore, they're going to be more emotionally regulated when it comes to high stress environments because you know they're not they're, they're not going to go into those condition blacks as easily as maybe someone that's less trained where fear you know is is hijacking the amygdala and it's like okay well that sounds good in principle and i like that but if you were going to if you were going to say hey by next year every police officer in america needs to be a blue belt well guess what <laughs> it's never going to happen because that's 18,000 police officers you probably have less than one tenth of one percent of police officers that are trained to that level right now. And if you're gonna if you're gonna make that standard now, you got to create the time to to train. You got to find the trainers, competent trainers that can train to that level. And that costs a lot of money. And that ultimately what we get down to is uh kind of, you know, I beat a dead horse over and over again on this when we talk about defunding the police. If you want to improve the professionalism and and the outcomes that you get from policing defunding is the exact opposite thing that you should do if any so in my mind anyone that's calling for the defunding of police is really just asking for what we want is anarchy we want no control and and, and i may not be willing to say that but that's really what i mean when i say defund the police um because that's what you're getting right and we're we're kind of seeing that play out over time so it would be nice to train, you know, like it would be nice to be able to train like special forces operators, like the military be able, is able to train in, in this professional model. What I would like to see is maybe an investment at the scale uh, that we tr that we have for national defense uh, and put that towards domestic defense, because our who knows, maybe if we took all the budgets of police departments across America and added them up. Yeah, I would imagine it would be one fraction of a percent that we spend that we give the DOD for national defense. I'm not saying that we don't do that, but the the frustrating thing is, is that we had somebody has to find the will to be able to say, look, if we want to change things, we've got to invest in it, not not just ignore it and not just wait till the next headline comes up and then we all grandstand and talk about how bad this is and then the news cycle moves on and then we move on to something else. And we don't, and no real changes ever comes from that. And, you know, in, in the wake of those incidents where there's just a path of destruction, lives lost, uh, you know, people go to jail, careers get ruined. Um, so what I'd like to see in short is we take, we take 20% of, of what we would spend on national defense invested in domestic uh, defense. And, and within 10 years, I think you would have a, you would have a whole different a whole different uh, policing community in America, and we'll save yeah. it for another podcast when actually how we roll that out. <laughs> well, I, I I agree with you. I mean, the the path forward, yeah, is not defunding. It's uh, as you say, uh, investing in police, investing in training, investing. You you, you talk about force options, jujitsu. Well, you know. Uh, verbal communications skills you know there's a, a thing called uh, insight policing now yep. uh, i-n-s-i-g-h-t um which is um a dialogue process that that's that's really good so yeah it, it, it's moving forward some of these um newer and different ways of, of, of policing upping the skill level um 
you know, I, I've harped on about uh, leadership skills, uh, you know, media skills. There's so much. Uh, and I, I agree with you. It's, it's the opposite of defunding. I'm kind of proud that in Vancouver, our new mayor, um, part of his platform was um, 100 more police officers. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Is he going to be able to find him? Well, I think so. Within um, a few weeks of being in office, he's working the city for the budget and uh, moving forward. Um, so not everybody's into defunding. Um, but I, I think you're you're bang on. It's it's the investment in policing. It's it's creating a vision. You see, that's another thing. That is is you ask people what's the vision of policing, and they're like, oh, I don't know. There should be a vision. And and I like what you're saying. It it's like uh, more training. Let let's broaden their skill sets. Let's uh, look at um, rationalizing and standardizing, um, especially for smaller departments, what what they can have available. Um, Let's, Let's teach officers what their true potential is yeah, and, and not limit them and, and give them the resources to be the best versions of themselves, because that's what's going to that's what's going to improve the performance of your police departments. It doesn't you can have the best policies, you can have the best training, you can have the best technology, the best equipment. But if you've got suboptimal human beings driving all that, you're yeah. spinning your wheels, you're. And so I think I think a part of that is is moving away from um, this fear of being beat up in the media, um, being dealt with by civilian bodies that don't get policing, don't get the job, don't understand anything, but uh, get on their own agendas, um, which makes everyone shut down and be defensive and turtle. Yeah. Um, but to know that if if I if something doesn't work out the way it, it might have that at least the review will be done by knowledgeable people. And if there's a training issue, it'll be dealt with as a training issue, not a political issue. And if I did wrong, I'm a professional. Tell me and let's deal with it. And, and so the, the environment is, is not good right now. And I think it's a consequence of, of the application of an ideology that at one point made a lot of sense to me. <laughs> and, and now I'm recanting. And saying, uh, I've seen the result of that uh, application, and we need to rethink. We need to um, move forward and, and have a vision that's uh, positive. Amen. All right, John, we've been going for, uh, I told you this would happen. It's easy. We've been going for almost two hours now. <laughs> yeah. We'll I mean, have we, to wrap uh, it up. We, we avoided a lot of uh, Side topics we could have spent a lot of time on. Oh, so I know. This, this is going to stay fairly focused. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, thanks we'll, for have, we'll, we'll have to do another one down the road. And um, I, I do. I did want to give people an opportunity. Where, where can they find you? Um, if you uh, want to give your website and stuff. Yeah. Uh, my website is uh, johndhass.ca forward slash. So that's J-O-H-N-D-E-H-A-A-S dot C-A forward slash. And you can, yeah. uh, you're on LinkedIn. And I'm I would encourage you yeah. find me on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah, I would encourage people to follow you on LinkedIn, get on your website because um, I cheated a little bit. You know, I read your blog post. So there were some things that I, I kind of had queued up in my notes as to what I was going to ask you. But uh, I do, I really do think that, um, you you have a, a ton of knowledge, a ton of wisdom. You've got great perspective. 
and it's uh, there's a lot that we can learn from you. There's a lot that policing can learn from you. And uh, yeah, we just got to take the opportunity to do it. So I, I really appreciate you spending some of your valuable time with us, sharing sharing your wisdom, dropping some knowledge bombs on us and, and taking us back a little bit so we can uh, find the right path forward. Thanks for having me. Um, what, what I love about this is um, because I'm not in the organization, uh, those controls aren't there and I can actually speak my mind. And, and so I really appreciate that. And, and I think uh, just a last comment is um, what I've realized is um, policing's a career. Like you, you don't walk away from it when you've left the organization. It, it's there. It follows and you no matter where it, you go, right? Like, yeah, you know that. <laughs> and and that's that I think is what makes it a profession too. Yeah. And uh that that would be a whole great discussion in and of itself is you know, when when people are retiring, they're just dropping off. And I don't I mean, I don't blame people for, you know, there was actually a, a book, it was written by a, uh one of your fellow Canadians, it was called Victory Lap. And it was a fascinating book. And it was about what do I, what am I going to do in my next life when I retire from my current career? Not just necessarily policing, but, um, but that's all part of the professionalization process and all part of the training that we're talking about, that we're not just preparing you to be the best officer that you can be for your agency and your community, but how to, how to be there for yourself and for your family. So when you do age out of policing, because there is a time, you know, the work in the street, there are certain things in policing that is a younger officer's game. Uh, there's certain things that that uh, the older, wiser uh, generation, I think, can bring and give back to policing. But you know, there is life. There is also life after policing, and uh, I'm just starting to figure that out. So appreciate appreciate it again. We're about ready to go right down another rabbit hole, so I'm going to leave it right there. That's right. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, until the next time, I'm 10:42. The Coptimizer podcast is powered by Performance Protocol. Performance Protocol brings professional executive coaching to police officers and administrators at all levels of the organization. Performance Protocol has the blueprint that will operationalize organizational optimization. It is purpose-built for today's public safety employees to help them accomplish goals and live better. What is it? One-on-one video-based coaching with officers and leaders who have been in your shoes and know firsthand what it means to live and work in public safety. The program will connect you with certified coaches who combine their years of success in the world of law enforcement with world-class training from the cobble of performance protocol coaches. Get the support, resources, motivation you need to live the life you want. Performance protocol coaches are relatable, knowledgeable, and confidential. Most importantly, they get results. Why should the keys to unlocking our peak performance be reserved for just the boardroom or the playing field? Unleash your full potential today and get started with Performance Protocol. Remember, performance is the goal. Protocol is the path. Log into www.performance-protocol.com and learn more about how to bring this program to your agency and community.